Well, I have the honour and privilege of introducing Dave more formally this morning to you all. Uh, Dave Taylor is the Senior Pastor of uh, Sovereign Grace Church Barunga. I forgot the name of it for a second. Uh, actually, they're not even called Sovereign Grace Church. They're called Sovereign Grace Church Sydney. See, I've been out of there three months. I've forgotten you all. Uh, Dave came from uh, Wales 10 years ago to plant a Sovereign Grace Church here in Sydney. Uh, I joined that church at the right at the end of 2012, uh, and it's incredibly changed our lives. Maddie and I were just about to have our first kid when we joined, and so all of our parenting, much of our marriage has been in Sovereign Grace, and under really the pastoral care of Dave and his wife, Emma, um, we, we just couldn't even put to words how much they have shaped us and how much we love you guys. Uh, Dave is an incredible pastor, incredible preacher of God's Word, uh, incredible leader of teams. In fact, he's such a good leader. He's a world-class leader. He wouldn't want to say this, but he's actually the uh, leader of Sovereign Grace for all of emerging nations. So wherever Sovereign Grace is expanding internationally, um, this week he was in South Korea and Hong Kong. Uh, wherever we're expanding internationally, Dave's involved in helping local Indigenous leaders start Sovereign Grace in their own nation. Uh, and so we're very privileged to have Dave come and speak to us this morning, uh, to have, you know, God's gift through you, um, through His Word preached. Uh, and so it's going to be very exciting. We're going to take a break from Ephesians and speak from John 19. Uh, Dave's going to preach a message called the Compassion of the Son. Is that it? Yeah, I got it right. I was going to say the cry of compassion, but the compassion of the Son. Uh, and we're going to look at Jesus this morning um, out of the book of Ephesians and focus on Him and see Him on the cross. I'm very much looking forward to hearing you preach. Can we all give Dave a very warm, Sovereign Grace Parramatta welcome? Thanks, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. If somebody introduces you as an incredible speaker, yeah. you do just feel the pressure just to touch for the rest of the time. And it, is, it is so good to be with you all. So many familiar faces and people I know. Some people from Sovereign Grace Church Sydney. Thank you. I obviously couldn't handle being a week without me. It's so kind. And, um, others of you from Sovereign Grace Church of Parramatta, it is so good to see you and to be singing uh, with you and amongst you. We're just so proud of you. Um, I'm so proud of you as a pastor who um, in part played a part in sending you. But also to see what the Lord is doing here is just so wonderful. I get to travel a, a ton, but coming to Parramatta is definitely the highlight of traveling this year. It's so good to be with you and to see what the Lord is doing. And if you're from Parramatta or coming to this church locally and I don't know you, um, you are the reason why we planted this church. You're the reason why we prayed for it. You're the reason why we got involved in it. You're, you're just some of the fruit. And so I look forward to getting to know you and trust over many years and we're just praying for you as a local church. We're thrilled by what the Lord is doing. We couldn't be more proud of you. And it's a thrill to bring God's word to you today. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 19. When Riley and I were talking about what messages to potentially bring today, and I suggested this one straight away, he was like, let's do this one. Because I think it gives us a chance to stop and stare at Jesus. And as we head towards... Christmas, I think as Arby prayed so wonderfully early on, Lord, help us not to get too distracted with all the Christmas stuff this year. Help us to gaze at you, and I think this message will help us do that. And so we're going to read John chapter 19 from verse 23 to the end of verse 27. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of your word today because your word shines a light on you. We get to see you in your fullness and in your glory. And Lord, today I pray that you would open our eyes to see your compassion. How marvelous is your love. How profound is your grace. How merciful is your compassion. Would it wash over us this morning like a flood? Would we stand amazed in you? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are some articles in newspapers that tend to stick in your mind. And if you've got a mind like mine, they tend to stick in your mind for the rest of your life. Sadly, lots of stuff sticks in my mind. Usually stuff that isn't that important. Important stuff I cannot remember. Unimportant stuff I do remember. And there was one such article that I came across in a newspaper um, in November 2005. It's an article entitled, Joe the Hero. And it reads as follows. It emerged yesterday that pothole victim Joe Lister died saving the lives of his classmates. School friend Lee Murphy said the 14-year-old hero let other children go before him to escape the rising waters, only to find himself trapped underground. He said it seems they had to swim to get out of the other side. I've heard there were only a couple of them left and Joe told them to go first. A girl in front of Joe said she could feel him pushing her from behind as she went through. Joe was among 11 pupils exploring a cave network at Upper Nidderdale, North Yorkshire, on Monday, accompanied by a teacher and a guide. He was discovered missing after a head count. It is not known if the count took place above or below ground, but Joe was eventually recovered unconscious and died in hospital. Everyone in the school is said to be in total shock. Teachers and pupils are simply stunned and upset by what has taken place. It is believed now that the cave system may have been hit by a flash flood after water thundered over the walls of nearby Scarhouse Reservoir into the River Nid. The river, which rose by up to four foot in an hour on the day of the tragedy, flows only yards from the five-foot entrance to the caves. Fencing worker William Standeven said normally a child can paddle in the river at the base of the reservoir, but on Monday, the waters were raging. Yesterday, Joe's classmates at Tadcaster Grammar School changed their blue and white ties for morning black ties. Shocked head teacher Jeff Mitchell has described young Joe as an absolute delight. Grieving grandfather Bill Lister said, none of us know how this could have happened. Joe is such a strong swimmer. And Joe's parents... Martin and Paula of Steeton simply said this, All we feel is total devastation. You know, as a parent, I can barely even imagine what that must have felt like 
For those of you that don't know me, I have five children raising from 17 through to now eight as of yesterday. And I can only imagine how difficult it would be to woman, it be holding them in your arms and then dedicating them to the Lord and then at 14 years old, be by their casket as they're about to be buried. I can barely imagine how difficult that must have been for them. But one parent who could imagine and one parent who could relate to them is right here, Mary, the mother of Jesus himself. See, before she even saw Jesus this day, before she even saw her son on this day, she had already been through so much. By the time Mary saw Jesus, he had been whipped, he had been scourged. There were bits of bone and metal placed into a whip, and he would have been whipped with bits of flesh being pulled from his back as they whipped him. He was mocked by a whole battalion of soldiers and beaten by them. A crown of thorns had been placed on his head and pressed deeply into his skull, no doubt, no doubt bringing about blood pouring down his cheeks and his face and his head. He was so exhausted from the ordeal that on the way to Calvary, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, had to be stopped and pulled in to carry the cross for Jesus because he just couldn't cope with it and couldn't do it any longer. And then at Calvary, he was crucified. By the time Mary saw her son on this day, he was a beaten and bloodied mess. John Stott describes this scene this way, the scene of what she would have seen. When they reached the site of the crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six-inch nails were driven into his forearms just above the wrist. His knees were twisted sideways so that the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. He was lifted up on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. There he was left to hang in intense heat and unbearable thirst, exposed to the mockery and ridicule of the crowd. He hung in unthinkable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. Listen, it was the height of pain and the depth of shame. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. And there in the crowd is his mum, looking on and seeing all that is taking place to her son in this moment. It is hard to imagine what that must have been like for her. See, one of the worst experiences of my life was walking through a series of operations with my eldest son. And so when Josh, uh, Josh was born, he's now 17 and fine, he was born with a, a submucous cleft palate in his mouth, only one kidney worked, he had two holes in his heart, there was lots of things going on with him. And I'll never forget the first operation we had to take him through, he was three and a half years old, and he had to have a, uh, his palate sorted out first of all, which meant they were going to cut from the back of his throat all the way down and take the muscles out and move them around and put them all back together again. And the worst thing about it was I'd never been to an operation before, and, and they actually asked me to come into the operating theater with him, and then Josh was getting a bit panicked by what was going on, so they actually asked me to hold him down while they put a mask on his face and sedate him. And, and I'll never forget that moment where I'm holding him down, and he's just looking at me as if to say, Dad, what are you doing? And I'm just holding him, saying, Son, it's going to be okay. This is for your good. But I will never, ever forget, I think till the day I die, the look on my son's face in that moment. It was awful 
Holding Josh down for his first operation was possibly the most difficult thing I've ever done. But that is nothing compared to what Mary is facing and seeing in this moment. Seeing her son in excruciating pain, hearing the mocking of the crowd, seeing him naked in shame before the world to see, with people all around spitting on him and mocking him as they go past. And she's there. Jesus' mom. And if there was ever a moment in Jesus' life that you could understand the Savior thinking about himself... It would surely be this moment. Considering all he's been through, you could imagine and understand if he just says, okay, that's it, I'm checking out, I'm praying to the Father, I'm done. Don't, don't talk to me, I don't want to engage with you. You could understand why he would want to do that. And yet each and every time you encounter Jesus, even on the cross, incredibly, even now, he's not thinking about himself. Even now, his selfless gaze is on others. So there on the cross, he looks at the soldiers and he looks at the crowd. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then he looks at the thief. On either side of him, there are two thieves. And one of the thieves effectively puts their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. He explains, I, I know you are real. I, I know who you are. And he says, yeah. And today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus recognizes you trusting in me now. You're putting your faith in me right now. You will be with me. And then in great compassion, he turns to his mom and he turns to John, his beloved disciple, and he shares some words with them that are full of compassion. But the truth is they're not just there for them. They're also there for us. So we can see. So we can learn. So we can magnify our King of kings and Lord of lords. And these words, I think, are life-changing when we grasp them and understand the implications of what they say. Our three points then this morning that we want us to examine as we gather around this scene. Number one, the Savior's compassion for his mother. The Savior's compassion for his mum. You know, when I was putting together this message, I tried to get inside Mary's head as best I can. It's the way I try and prepare for different things. And the more you think about Mary's life, the more you think, man, this was radically different to anybody else. She has experienced motherhood in a way that is quite different from everybody else. She has indeed had quite the journey. You see, just a, most likely a teenager... The angel Gabriel turns up to Mary as a teenager, and the angel tells her, listen, although you never slept with anybody, you're going to have a baby, and this baby is going to be the Son of God. Now, I know there's some mothers in the room. I don't believe that's happened to any of you. Already, there's some quite unique parts of her life. I mean, imagine it is you, and as a teenager, an angel appears and tells you, you are going to have a baby, although you're a virgin, and he will be God himself. Well, imagine the shock when nine months later that actually happens. But this is God. This is the king. So surely he'll be given birth into a palace or a kingdom or something of that nature. No, he's going to be born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. But when he's born, there's going to be angels in the fields surrounding the stable. And they're going to be declaring that God has come. Emmanuel, Christ, God is with you. So much so that shepherds begin to hear these things and they're like, oh, what in the world is going on? 
Shepherds aren't these like little boys that we often get betrayed in the media. They're like the NRL bad boys of the day. That's, you know, they were the type of people that they were. So these NRL bad people are, are weeping. They're just so afraid of the angels. And then they eventually pluck up the courage. What is going on? And then all they want to do is find this king. And they do find him. And when they meet Jesus, even as a baby, they fall to their knees and they sing praises to him, aware this is him. And then they're followed by the wise men who bring gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it says at that point, Mary, even in a youthfulness, stored up all these things in her heart and marveled, what, what is the Lord doing here? Who is this that I hold in my hand? Mary would have been there then, and she would have enjoyed many special moments with Jesus throughout his life. I mean, she would have been there when the first time Jesus crawled, walked, laughed, and talked. She would have been there the first time he said, Mama. She would have been there the first time he giggled and she's tickling him. She would have been there to receive the first pictures and the first few pieces of carpentry. You know the ones? The stuff that you go, oh, wow, this is amazing. But actually, you think, this is awful, horrendous. It's just terrible. You know, I can't even believe you've done this. You know, she would have been there to receive these things from Jesus for the first time. She would have been there at each birthday party to lead the singing and the celebration, celebrating the life of her son. She would have been there to read stories and tuck him into bed and talk late into the night that the things are on his heart and the things he's thinking about. This would have been a great privilege to have been the Savior's mom. But with this great privilege also came great sorrow. And it was a great sorrow that she knew was coming. See, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to be dedicated in the temple, which is what they would have done at that time. And it says at that moment, the priest Simeon looks at the child and he rejoices immediately that this is God. I've seen God with my own eyes. This is him. And then as he dedicates Jesus to the Lord, he also looks straight at Mary and says, a sword will surely pass through your soul also. He prophesied that, listen, with this life will come great privilege, but Mary, with this life will also come great sorrow, and over a lifetime, that's exactly what happened. Arthur Pink, in his commentary, says it this way. He says, what sorrow it must have caused Mary, when because there was no room in the inn, she had to lay her newly born babe in the manger. What anguish must have been hers when she learned of Herod's purpose to destroy her infant's life. What trouble was given her when she was forced on his account to flee into a foreign country and sojourn for several years in the land of Egypt? What piercings of soul must have been hers when she saw her son despised and rejected by men? What grief must have wrung her heart as she beheld him hated and persecuted by his own nation? And who can estimate what passed through her soul as she stood there at the cross. Mary had enjoyed much privilege, but now she was about to endure much sorrow. And as you see Mary standing there at the Savior's feet, looking up at all that he's going through, it is hard to imagine what she was indeed going through. See, she's standing there, aware of the mocking of the crowd, aware of the pain that he is in. She's even aware of the activities of the soldiers 
just a few feet away from her. See, verse 23 and 24, it talks about this tunic, this one piece of uh, seamless material from top to bottom. And it says that the reason why he's letting them know that, or letting us know that, is because this was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so it's all part of the proof that this is the Christ. And that's true. But there's also something really intimate that John is talking about here. You see, the tunic in Jewish tradition, you would get at 13 years old. It'd be your 13-year-old gift is to recognize that you're becoming a man, which at that time, at 13, you became a man. And so you'd get given a tunic. And it would be your mum that would make it for you. And it would be your mum that would present it to you. So see this scene here. Jesus is hanging on a cross and his mom is there hearing the crowd mocking him, aware of the pain he's in and the tunic that she most likely gave him on his 13th birthday is being cast lots over as if it's just a rag. This is overwhelming for Mary, but what is most captivating about this scene is that the Savior is wonderfully aware of her too. Look again at verse 26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. As Jesus opened his eyes and saw his mother, he is filled with compassion for her because this is his mom. This is the mom that he has honored all his life with perfection. This is the mom he loves with all of his heart. This is his mom who was there on his birthdays, who was there in the evenings, who was there to pick him up when he fell over. This is his mom whom he loves with all his heart. And so the thought for him of what his mom must be going through in this moment was grieving and upsetting. And so he has great compassion on his mom in this moment. He's aware that, Mom, I'm aware. And me going, you're going to go through grief. And it breaks my heart. And he's aware that following on from this moment, what exactly is his mom going to do to survive? See, in the Bible, there's no mention of Joseph, Jesus' dad, after the age of 12 years old. Most likely, Joseph died. And so who would look after the mom when the dad dies? Well, the eldest child. Who is the eldest child? Jesus. And so as Jesus hangs on the cross, he has great compassion for his mom and all that she's gone through. And he also has great compassion on her future. Where the mom, I love you. And I'm grateful for you. And I want to care for you. And so he looks her in the eye and he addresses her with these wonderful words of compassion. Woman, behold your son. Woman, behold John. He will care for you. He will look after you in your grief. He will look after you in all your needs. In Australia, I, I don't know about you, but if you said to your mum, woman, <laughs> the next thing that would happen is you'd get a slap around the face. That's what would happen. You'd just be like, oh, thank you very much. Woman, thank you. There's no way. But in this culture, woman was a term of great endearment. It was actually a very close term. As so what Jesus is saying in this moment to his mum is, mum, I love you. So, mum, behold your son. He'll care for you. He will love on you. Mum, my work is done. I'm going. But John's here, and he will care for you. 
If ever you could understand Jesus thinking about himself, this is surely it. I don't know about you, but I'm a normal man, so that means when I get flu, it is far worse than any woman has ever even imagined. It's like man's swine flu. It's the worst. And I'm not thinking about anybody else in that moment apart from myself. You know, if I get a paper cut, I'm thinking about myself. Jesus, hanging in excruciating pain and shame, is thinking about others, and he's thinking about his mom. It's wonderful. And number two, the Savior's compassion for his disciple. Jesus isn't done. See, the last time John, who is this beloved disciple that's being talked about here, last time John had seen Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, when Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, we understand that he was greatly distressed of soul. Jesus is aware of what is coming. He is overwhelmed at the thought, as you can understand. He is sweating drops of blood. And so he takes John and Peter and James into the garden with him, and he sits them down and says, this is what I want you to do. Just pray for me. My soul is distressed. I am anxious. I am overwhelmed. Please just cry out to God the Father for me. And going a little farther, it says that he fell to his knees and he cries out to his father himself. John has got one job, stay awake and pray. Jesus goes back twice and each and every time John is asleep. That's the last sort of event. John, the one who's saying, I'm your best friend. One job, stay awake and pray for me. Comes back twice, asleep. The last time Jesus actually saw John, he probably didn't see much of John. He actually saw the bottom of his feet because John was running away as fast as he could. See, John and the other disciples had told Jesus, listen, if they ever come for you, no no dramas. We will beat them up and we we will stand with you. Jesus, we will never leave you or forsake you. And Jesus already told them, you will. And they, they, were, they were disgraced by that. You are kidding me. I will never leave you. You are our king. You are our master. You are our rabbi. I will never leave you. And Jesus, come, come to the side a minute. Even if they leave you, I will never leave you. I'm your best friend. I'm never going to leave you. What happens? They walk out the Garden of Gethsemane. A whole battalion comes down. There's a small ruckus for about a millisecond. And then what do they do? They all run away, including John. Garden of Gethsemane, one job, stay awake, pray, asleep. Edge of the Garden of Gethsemane, one job, protect Jesus, run away. That's the last time John saw Jesus. So you could understand that in this moment, he may well be troubled and concerned about what the Savior's response to him is going to be like. I let him down. I ran away from him. I couldn't even stay awake to pray. One commentator, however, says, but love for Jesus could not keep John from Calvary. And no, it couldn't. He had let him down and blown it, but he was concerned for him, and so he attends Calvary. And that just opens up another wonderful scene of compassion because as the Savior sees John in this moment, he does not respond with disgust, or anger, or rebuke, or, I can't believe you did that. 
Verse 27. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. What incredible words of compassion they really are. John would have known Jesus' love for his mum. He would have known how he felt, how Jesus felt about his mum. And he would have known in this moment, Jesus, you are entrusting your mum, who you deeply love and care for, into my care. John would have been deeply honored by that. Do you trust me enough to look after your mum? You want me to look after your mama? And John would have instinctively known in this moment that this wasn't just a desire that John look after his mom. He would have instinctively known that what Jesus is also saying to him is, John, it's okay. You didn't stay awake. You did run. But John, I love you. And I forgive you. So, John, Behold your mum. Look after mum. Care for mum. What an incredible scene of compassion this really is, isn't it? It's remarkable. And it's one of these texts that you so often just look over and think, oh, interesting, yeah. Mm." You don't think nothing more about it. But when you slow down and actually stop and stare at what's going on, you see this is a wonderful scene of compassion. From Jesus to his mom and to this disciple. And what's wonderful about it is that 2,000 years on, this scene still speaks to us today. And that's my third point, the Savior's compassion for us. As Martin Luther once said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. And so it does. The Bible is alive. It comes after us. It pursues. It runs after us. It isn't just a book of history that we stand in awe of and go, oh, very interesting. It's really interesting to see what happened 2,000 years ago. No, it is alive. It runs after us. Yes, we read it, but all the time it is reading us. The Spirit of God takes it and it brings it alive in our hearts in a way that it just hadn't been for us before. And so what is it that we learn? Well, two things. Number one, for each and every one of us in the room, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. This book is alive, and when you pay attention to it, you realize it has implications. First implication, the reality that for each and every one of us in the room, there's always grace. Always grace. When we come back to the cross. See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, this text speaks to it. See, the Bible teaches us that God made us, and he made us for his presence. He made us to actually be with him. So in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, that's what's so remarkable about it. You've got man and woman walking around and God walking around right next to him, and you think, wow, what was that like? We were actually made to be in the presence of God, to have, to have our identity and joy and confidence and glory all in Him. And that would have, if we had been able to do that, our lives would have made total sense. Because we were made to be with Jesus. We were made to be with God. We were made to be in His presence. But mankind screwed up. And so did we. We all rejected the Creator and decided to stick with the creation instead. I want what you've made, but I don't want you. 
In fact, I'm going to blame you when things go wrong, but the rest of the time I don't even want to talk to you, and I'm going to go for this. But this, all the creation, it, it can be very enjoyable, but it makes a lousy God, so our lives never feel like they're making sense. That's why you read the newspapers and they say the things they do. And the world seems to be such a confusing mess. And God could have left us like that because it wasn't him rejecting us, it was us rejecting him. But we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Merry Christmas. That's what it's really all about. The coming of the King, the coming of the Savior who is going to get us back into the presence of God. How can I, as a sinful man, spend time with a holy God? There's only one way, through Jesus Christ, through the Son of God who gave his life away as a ransom for many. And when we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, he takes us in our sinfulness and he washes us clean and he wraps us in his purity. And then he says, now you can come. Come back to where you belong. Come back to the very presence of God. That's what Christmas is all about. And Christmas ultimately points to Easter, where he gave his life as a ransom for many, the exact scene that Mary, Jesus' mom, is looking on right here. It teaches us stuff. It teaches us that there is always grace when we come back to the cross. When we put our faith in Jesus, we don't receive from him in that moment, no, I'm not interested. We receive from him, that is exactly why I came. Yes! Come into the presence of God. You know, maybe you're not a Christian. If that's the case, then put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. It's the only way of salvation. It's the only way back. Maybe you have been back. But maybe you left again. Maybe you're more of a prodigal. And I... I Truth is, as a pastor, I meet with prodigals all the time. People where I, you know, I did, I did know God, but I kind of don't know him anymore. I feel really distant. I'm nowhere near him. That's what being a prodigal kind of is. Sometimes we're a prodigal like it talks about in Luke chapter 15, i.e. somebody who has ran away from God deliberately. That usually comes about when we sort of know God, but then something in the world catches our attention and we run after that instead. But we're a prodigal. Somewhere along the line, we moved a long way from God, and we wonder how we got there. Sometimes it's very deliberate. Sometimes it's undeliberate because we just get distracted. The busyness of life. I think you can say busyness equals Sydney. Just put that there. If you don't purposefully stay with God, you will constantly drift away from him. Before you know it, you realize, I'm in another block. How did I get here? Sometimes we're a prodigal because it's deliberate. Sometimes we're a prodigal when we get distracted. But either way, my experience is when we're out of it, we start to think, I can't go back now. Imagine how disappointed he's going to be with me. I should have known better. I've completely messed up. This text teaches us that there's always grace when we come back to the cross. Imagine how John must have felt. Last time I saw Jesus, my best friend, he saw the bottom of my feet as I was running away from him. And he gave me one job to stay awake and pray for him. I fell asleep twice. 
And yet when John returns to Jesus, he doesn't receive disgust or anger or rebuke. He receives grace and compassion and mercy. John, welcome home. And my friends, when you return to Jesus, the same thing happens. For every one of us in the room, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. Arthur Pink then says it this way. He says, cease then from your wanderings and your distractions and return at once to Jesus. And he will greet you not with a rebuke, but with a word of welcome and cheer. Isn't that beautiful? When we return to Jesus, he's not irritated or angry or rebuking. He comes back to us and he gives us a word of welcome and cheer. Each and every one of us in the room, there's always grace when we come back to the cross. And then number two, the second thing this teaches us is that as Christians, because of the cross, that grace will never, ever leave us. See, at the foot of the cross, Mary was compassionately and specifically cared for by Jesus. Why? Well, because she was family. It's my mom. You're my family. He was never going to let a family member struggle on, so he cared with us with such grace and compassion and mercy. Well, my friends, 2,000 years on, we too, as Christians, can have confidence that the Savior will personally and compassionately care for you as well. Why? Because through the cross, you became family too. See, in Mark chapter 3, there's this one point where Jesus is chatting to a group of disciples and some crowds, and there's a lady that comes to the back, and that lady quickly becomes identified as Jesus' mom. And the mom is a bit concerned that her son appears to have maybe gone a little bit crazy. So she sends a message down through the people. Hey, listen, see the guy at the front that's speaking? Yeah, if you could pop him back here, because we need to have a chat with him. We're related. Okay. And Jesus just says to the crowd, he says, but who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He wasn't seeking to be disrespectful to his mom in that moment. But he was using this as a teaching opportunity of, listen, she may be my biological mom, but my ultimate family are those who put, my faith, put faith in me as Lord and Savior. They are my mother, and my brothers, and my sisters. What a happy discovery that is, don't you think? The same compassion and mercy that Jesus had towards Mary at the cross is the same compassion and mercy he has on all of his family members. See, the Bible teaches us as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. Things are going to happen in our lives. Christians aren't immune to them. It's not your best life now. Anybody preacher says your best life now, you say, no, I don't think it is. I think it's my best life to come. It's called heaven. <laughs> this is not heaven. We're on a mission towards getting to heaven. And we will make it to heaven through the personal work of Jesus Christ. But right now, we're on mission for him. And sure, sparks fly upwards, troubles fall, things happen in our life, and maybe you're here today and you're walking through a trial. Maybe you're walking through a health trial, there's something going on in your life and you're sick and it's difficult. 
And it's a difficult season to walk through. Maybe it's a trial with work, a job that you've been going for, or a job that you're hoping for, but it just seems to be elusive all the time. Or maybe you have a job, but you hate it, and it's awful. And so every day feels like a trial. And so you're crying out to God, Lord, please give me another job. But right now, there is no other job opening up. Maybe it's a family trial. Maybe you think, all I really want is obedient kids. Or maybe you think, all I really want is kids. Or all I really want is the kids to leave home. You know, there's a whole different rage when it comes to kids and where people are at. Or maybe it's marriage. Maybe you say, I'm not married, but I really want to be married. But it's just not opening up right now. Or, hey, I am married, but my marriage is a mess. And I need help. We're all over the shop. We're arguing and bickering all the time. I, I don't understand what's going on. Or maybe it's a relational challenge. You feel disconnected or alone or misunderstood or a financial challenge. You just don't know how you're going to keep making it week after week after week. Well, my friends, this is what I want you to know. Whatever your trial is, the compassionate gaze of, the compassionate gaze of Jesus that was on Mary at Calvary is now fully on you. Why? Because you're family too. You have the blood of Jesus Christ running through your veins. You have become part of the family of God, and so his compassionate gaze is on you as well. And that's why I want to encourage you then to lift your eyes to the hills from where your help comes. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one that will not let your foot be moved. He is the one that hems you in both behind and before. He is the one that doesn't slumber nor sleep in the midst of your trial. You sleep. He never sleeps. He's always busy at work, gazing on you with compassion and moving things into place. It may not be in your timing, but it is always in his timing. And his timing is perfect. And his compassion is perfect. And his grace is perfect. What we see here, then, is an incredible cry of compassion. And it's an incredible cry of compassion that is still speaking to us today. There's always grace when we come back to the cross. Always. We serve a merciful and loving and kind and gracious king. If you keep gazing at him, he will blow your mind with your goodness and mercy. And when we do put our faith in him because of the cross... That grace will never leave us. So keep looking up. Lift your eyes. His gaze is always on you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your compassion. Lord, it is overwhelming to think about. Lord, when you were at Calvary, we could have understood if you didn't want to talk to anybody if you just wanted to keep your head down and get through it. Lord, we understand that would make sense. But Lord, you are such an incredible king that even there, you're thinking about others. You're thinking about me. And you're thinking about us. And you're thinking about the soldiers and the crowd. And you're thinking about your mom and your beloved disciple. Lord, you are an incredible king. So Lord, knowing now then that we can stand in your presence knowing that through faith in you we can come into your very presence Lord would we run to your presence and would we find sweet peace there
and would all glory go to you. Amen.